there was a North Korean intelligence officer who we suspected was operating in my area. And I got a notification from FBI headquarters to find out what he's up to and see if you can't make him into a double agent. Welcome to NPS I Love You, a podcast powered by Catalyst. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and this show is all about awesome people, ideas, and stories, all with a customer success twist. On NPS I Love You, I talk to everyone from artists to scientists, CEOs to CSMs, and everyone in between to give you powerful insights that will help you in your career and in life. Jack Schaefer is a psychologist, professor, author, intelligence consultant, and former FBI special agent. He's conducted counterintelligence and counterterrorism investigations, worked as a behavioral analyst, and he has trained agents in the art of interrogation and persuasion. He's also written some fantastic books, including The Like Switch and The Truth Detector. In this special episode, Catalyst CEO Edward Chu speaks with Jack about how CS and sales can uncover truth quickly, build relationships fast, and achieve desired outcomes. Welcome, everyone, to this very exciting session. Um, Here I have Jack Schaefer, who is a PhD psychologist and a professor and who previously spent 15 years doing counterintelligence investigations. Now, he's an amazing author of books like The Light Switch and The Truth Detector. And Jack, I wanna kick things off really quickly with, you've had an amazing career, you've written some awesome books, there's a lot that we can get into, Uh, but we only have an hour, so I wanna leave time for questions from the audience. But for my part, I wanna focus on two high-level topics, um, winning people over, and uncovering truths that the other party doesn't want to fully reveal, which uh, in our industry and customer success and sales is critically important, you know, for things like how much budget do people have to spend on their product. But before we get into all that, uh, my intro questions are, uh, out of all the books that you've written, uh, which one should the crowd here go read immediately and and, and why? I think uh, people should read The Like Switch because The Like Switch contains a lot of very specific techniques that you can use to make friends with people that you can build relationships with you can influence people and you can also repair relationships with the information in the like switch so that it's very specific techniques that you can use as soon as you finish reading the book you can go out and use those techniques all right well well to to Give the context of, of a little bit of counterintelligence background. Let's see. Let's see how good you are at, at getting us to believe in you. Tell us something uh, mm-hmm. that most people don't know about you and can't read in your bio and, and, and haven't read about your book. Surprise us with something that that most people don't know about you. Well, I like to read 18th, 19th century literature from England. I like to read like Jane Austen, Dickens, Thomas Hardy, and uh, I, I'm a big buff of history books in the civil war that's those are not books that that are generally up my alley but I, i'm sure they're 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 <laughs> wonderful um so let's let's get things kicked off in your books you share a number of stories on how you were able to win over strangers or or people you just met in particular uh foreign nationals of, of hostile countries which obviously is way more intense than than what we're doing with in our day-to-day but can you share one of those stories and, and what were some of the strategies that you, you employed? I think um, before we get into the nitty gritty of customer success and sales, I think people want to hear the, the, the raw stories of, of what you used to do. Yeah, well, there's one particular story that uh, I can think about, and that was the there was a uh, North Korean 
intelligence officer who we suspected was operating in my area. And I got a notification from FBI headquarters to find out what he's up to and see if you can't make him into a double agent. So when I wanted to uh, initially meet him, I didn't want to uh, hide my identity. I wanted to be who I was so I wouldn't be caught in a lie. If, if I said, well, I'm not in the FBI and I told you I was, and then, you know, I wasn't. And, <laughs> and it, it doesn't do well for trust. So I used some psychological techniques. He, he owned a little shop where he maintained a living. And I went there when he wasn't there. And I left a note with the clerk that said, hi, sorry, I missed you, Jack. And then I left. And so the, when he comes back, he's, he's going to say, who's Jack? So I'm starting to use curiosity to get him to like me, to wonder who I, who I was. I went in again when he was there or when he wasn't there, and I left a note, hi, Jack Schaefer, sorry I missed you again, Jack Schaefer, and I spelled my name out. So now when he gets that note, he's even more curious, who is this guy? And so then I went in a third time when he wasn't there and left a note, hi, Jack Schaefer, and I left my phone number. Well, it wasn't seconds before he got the message from the clerk, and then the uh, agent called me, we'll call him Mr. Kim. Mr. Kim called me, said, oh, you want to talk to me you with the FBI? I said, yes, I am. And I knew then that he would be uh, very agitated. So I went to see him when he was real busy in the shop. And I said, FBI. And I showed him my credentials. Of course, you see the panic on his face. So I, <laughs> so I leave because I know that he's in the fight flight syndrome. When, when you have the fight flight response, you don't think logically anymore. So I knew he wasn't thinking logically. So what I did was I left. I said, I'll come back when you're not so busy. So I gave him that 20 minutes to get over that shock of being confronted by the FBI. And then I went back 20 minutes later and I said, come on, let's take a walk down to the nearest uh, cafe and, and have something to eat. So I did that for a reason. Number one, get him off his turf, his home turf. And number two, when we walk, we have a predisposition to talk to people. So if we want to take a walk with somebody, what do we do? We talk all the time. This is the way we're, we're it's kind of learned behavior. So I predispose him to talk while we stroll. So I get to the restaurant. I order the coffee, and I do that because I want to uh, initiate the uh, re principle of reciprocity. If I give him something, he's going to give me something in return. That's the human nature, uh, natural response to reciprocity. The other reason I want to talk over food or drink is because 70% of all information is shared over food and drink. So that predisposes him further to talk with me. And the third reason is when he sets his co coffee cup down, if it's between me and him, that forms a barrier. So I know that we do not have rapport because people who have rapport do not like things in, in, in between the person they're talking to or the person they like. For example, real quickly, uh, people go into the restaurants, the first thing they do is clear the table of anything that's between them and the person they like. So I continued to build rapport, and then I noticed he put his cup to one side, so it was open. And I said, oh, then I started doing the proper interview. So he, he looks at me and he says, Mr. Schaefer, what is it you want? I said, sir, you called me. You must want to discuss something because you're the one that called me. I'm here because you made a telephone call to me. So what is it you want to talk about? So that's how you can instigate a lot of uh, psychological tools to predispose people to like you. 
Jack, I think you just got uh, uh, almost 100 customer success managers to start sending messages with no contacts. And all they're going to say is, hey, it, it, it's Edward. And then a couple of follow-up emails later and, and write, write the actual message. Um, a lot of good learnings there is make sure we send customers some food uh, before we, we do some negotiation and then invite them for a virtual Zoom walk. Um, speaking of, of virtual strategies, this sounds great when, when you can interact with them in, in, in human uh, interaction form, but now that we have remote, now that there's COVID, um, is it possible to adopt some of your strategies over Zoom or email, which is the number one communication form right now that uh, in our profession that we have with our customers? Yeah, absolutely, it's possible. and. It's it's a little bit different technique when you're using email or uh, instant messages. One of the things you want to keep in mind is that you need to speak in simple declarative sentences. The research has shown that simple declarative sentences appear more truthful. In other words, if you write somebody a simple declarative sent a message with several simple declarative messages, they're going to believe you more than if you wrote a series of long complex sentences. So you want to keep things simple to make yourself appear believable. The other thing you need to do is <clears throat> there's, we, we live in a turn-taking society. And if you just operate with email, people have a tendency to maybe overshare things. Because if we're in person, the other person will roll their eyes or give us a nice nonverbal cue that says, nah, I've had enough. Let's change topics. But we don't get that same sensation or those same verbal cues when we're on email. So we have to be careful. Uh, to craft our message in a way that we don't overshare things with people. And the other thing I would recommend is get get online as soon as possible to, to look at somebody because then those nonverbal cues that we use when we're in person still come into play over the uh, internet. And the three signals you want to watch out for is the up and down eyebrow movement of uh, the eyebrow flash, which is the up and down movement of your eyebrows. It lasts about one sixty fourth of a second, and what that does that's the number one friend signal. There's three primary friend signals, and that's the number one friend signal because when we approach one another live in real life at about five to six feet we will one of us will eyebrow flash and the other person will eye, eyebrow flash us back and that means I'm trying to hold my eyebrows down right now you you're getting, you're getting me to flash them so it's just an up or down it's just a quick up and down movement. And people don't notice they're doing that. So now that I point that out, when you approach people now, you'll see eyebrow flashes, especially with masks on. You, we, we need to express our eyes more. So if we eyebrow flash and the other person eyebrow flashes back, we're telling each other we're not a threat. So that's one way that we can communicate. Even online, we can see eyebrow flashes. And uh, it, 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 eyebrow flashes are also used if somebody's telling you a story and their eyebrow flashing a lot above their baseline, that means that story's probably true. And if they eyebrow flash less or don't eyebrow flash at all, that would be a signal that perhaps it's not the complete truth. So when I watch people and they're telling me a story, I always watch for eyebrow flashes because they signify things that we like. And when we tell a story, our mind relives the story, so we automatically have the nonverbal signals. The second nonverbal signal that you want to do is tilt your head a little bit to the right and a little bit to the left, not like crazy left or crazy, just a little <laughs> bit. Because what, what you're doing is you're exposing your what? Carotid artery. And that's a, a very vulnerable part of our body. So when we tilt our head this way, 
we're saying, hey, I trust you because I'm exposing a very vulnerable part of my body. So what you want to do is when you're looking at somebody, eyebrow flash, when you when they first come on, you're telling your story, make sure your eyebrow flashing, tilt your head a little bit. And if people are a little, uh, I don't ask people to trust me on this stuff. I ask people, go experiment and look at these things yourselves in real life. So when you, if anybody has a dog, you, you as soon as the owner walks into the house, they sit there and they look at you. And what that does is they're just telling you I'm not a threat or else the dogs will flip over on their back, expose their stomach, which is a very vulnerable part of their body. So they're saying, I trust you enough to expose a very vulnerable part of my body. And so animals do the same thing. The last thing we wanna do is we want to smile and tilt our head and smile because when we smile, we release endorphins. So if I smile at you, and, and it's very hard for people not to smile back. So if I smile at you, you're releasing endorphins. And if I smile back, or if you smile back, you're releasing the endorphins. So, we, 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 and, and endorphins make you feel good about yourself. It's that uh, uh, hormone that does, makes you feel good about yourself. So there's a golden rule of friendship. And that is, if you want people to like you, you make them feel good about themselves. And smiling is a part of doing that. And if you want to fake a smile, you can fake a smile. So you want to raise your cheek, cheekbones up a little bit and get your crow's feet working. And then the other person's brain will say, oh, that's, that's a true smile. That's a genuine smile. So the brain can pick those things up. So there's a lot of things we can do non-verbally, even, even when we're, uh, well, here, you know, I'll give you an example that people, I just happen to think of this. People, when we see each other in the morning, typically we go, hey, how you doing? We say something. The second time we see that person, we don't have to say, hey, how you're doing? What do we do? We eyebrow flash. Or guys do the chin thing. They jut no their <laughs> Yeah, they, they jut their chin out. All those are as friend signals. So when you meet a client online, what you want to do is make sure that you send these signals. And in order to do that, just catch yourself. Next time you see somebody eyebrow flash, catch yourself eyebrow flash and see how it feels. And then you can mimic that. So I know online it's hard to interact like that, but you have to make sure you're, you make sure you're, all your nonverbals are working. I just want to be clear that, A, uh, this session with Jack is not for us to teach everyone how to lie uh, and start flashing your eyebrows. And definitely don't roll over on your backs to, with your customers <laughs> to sh show them just how honest you are. Uh, I no, will say. This, uh, I want to correct you once. This is not about lying. This is what normal people do when they meet one another. All we're doing is ensuring that you know the skills. Because in today's world with the tech, you don't, people are losing these very valuable skills. So yeah. it's not about lying. It's about the putting the best you forward. Uh, I didn't get a chance to say this at the very beginning, but if the crowd has questions, uh, please type them in the question box. And um, if, they're, if they're resonating with, with what we're talking about in flight, uh, I will try to plug it in. Otherwise, we are going to say 15 minutes towards the end. Uh, to answer any of your questions. So don't miss this opportunity to, to ask the questions that, that's coming up to your mind for Jack. But Jack, I do want to say uh, somebody from the crowd, I won't name who said, I would not want to go to Jack's house asking his children for a date or marriage. This is brilliant stuff. So uh, now the crowd knows why I'm sweating. It's hard, it's hard to talk <laughs> with you because everything you're saying, like 
don't raise your eyes or, or do a fake smile. I feel like I'm just, I'm not doing that. I'm genuinely smiling. So, um, no, but this, all I'm doing is, is all I'm doing is pointing out things that normal people do when they meet one another, but they're not, they don't recognize what they do. So all I'm teaching you is to recognize what normal people do all the time, every day, hundreds of times a day. And what you want to do is make sure that you send the right message to your client. Yeah. You don't want to send the wrong message, especially if you're on the internet. So on the flip side of that, of, of thank you for teaching us on how to send messages. Part of our job in customer success is a lot of daily negotiation. So we're checking in with the customer and the customer says, uh, we, we say, how are things going? The customer says, things are great, but uh, really things aren't great. They just don't, they want to avoid confrontation. Or when the renewal discussion is coming up, uh, and, and during a quarterly business review call, we say, look, are, are you going to renew? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. We're definitely going to renew. You know, things, there's a couple of things we don't like, but generally things are going well. But in their mind, they're already reviewing our competitors, talking with our competitors behind our back. So uh, you just went over a bunch of examples on, on how to assess whether people are telling the truth. How do you portray yourself to be a good representative when you're trying to get something? But on the flip side of that, in your experience dealing with folks who are trained to lie and very good at it, what are some key things that um, you can tell in a real verbal conversation that they're lying? They're just not telling the truth. Well, there's, there's several things you can do. The first thing you can do is you can establish a lot of rapport with people. And I, I view rapport like a bank account. If I'm going to build rapport with you, I'm building, my, I'm building rapport with you. You're, the bank account's going way up. Now, the more I know you, the more you like me, the more difficult questions I can ask you and get a truthful answer. So rapport would be one way to do this, is to just build rapport, because the more rapport I build with a suspect, I can start asking, did you do this? I know you did this. You're an evil person. And, the, and they will accept that. So rapport is one way, and it's probably the, the easiest way to do that. So you're writing checks off that account. And if you yeah. ask too many personal questions, then you go, not sufficient funds, check comes back, bounced. So you don't want that. The second thing you can do is you can use elicitation. You can um, uh, use some very uh, uh, specific elicitation techniques. And elicitation is a te techniques that you can use to steer a conversation, get people to reveal sensitive information without them realizing they're revealing sensitive information. And one of the primary techniques I like is something called the presumptive. And all that is, is you're going to construct a, a presumptive statement that's either true or false. And people have a, a natural disposition to correct others. So if that statement is false, they will correct you, just almost instantaneously correct you, and then add some information. And if the presumption is correct, they will affirm it and then add information. And I think it's very interesting because, you know, I teach school at Western Illinois University, and I do this to my students all the time when I'm teaching the course on elicitation. And I'll ask a, uh, a senior a question, and I'll say, well, that's a very shrewd answer for a freshman. And, and I, <laughs> I, I still remember the girl going like, I know what he's up to, I, is she stumbling? <laughs> doesn't know what to say and I let it go for a second or two and then she blurted out out of the clear blue she says I'm a senior <laughs> and I knew what you were up to because you taught it to us 
And yet I did it. I, I just, I had to tell you I was a senior, not a freshman. So that's what we want to do. So if you want to know if you're, you're, if you casually ask somebody, so your budget uh, is a little tight this year because of COVID. Or you can use something called reported facts and add that to your presumptive. I read on the internet that your company is a little, uh, they're, they're a little strapped because of the COVID problems or the, the tariffs with China or whatever situation is, is current. And they believe me, they will tell you, no, we're not, we're, we're, we're okay. We've, we've, we've compensated for that. Or yeah, well, it was a little tough and we're having problems. I like to know if, if deliveries can be on time. You ask them, if you, can you deliver on time? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I read on the internet that uh, you're having some manufacturing problems with the, with the manufacturing line. Oh, no, no, we fixed those. Or, well, yeah, there's a few problems. And they just tell you that because they have to correct you. So what we're doing is tapping into these psychological principles that predispose people to tell us the truth. You know, I, I, I just ordered a couch yesterday and I really needed them to let me know whether they're going to deliver on time. And damn it, this session would have been so much better 24 hours ago. Uh, and I do want to say to everyone here really quickly, it's a very funny story. Uh, Jack and I had had a prep call uh, and, and I'm trying to learn a little bit about what we're going to talk about. And um, I said, look, one of the things that would be great is, is this uh, talking about budget. And uh, out of nowhere, Jack, Jack says to me, um, you know, you know, Catalyst is probably suffering, right? I mean, during the, during the pandemic, like your budget's probably not good. And, you know, obviously we, we haven't even gone to the point of him explaining. So I'm like, no, Catalyst is doing great. We're actually, uh, you know, software that is used by everyone during the pandemic to save customers. I'm going on for like five minutes trying to trying to justify why Catalyst is doing great. And honestly, not only did I give up the fact that we have budget, I just kind of screwed myself in saying we have a lot of budget. So uh, hopefully there's no vendors uh, on this call that's that's trying to court catalyst because either way, uh, I'm going to say we have low budget. But um, thank, thank you for that, Jack. That's a, that's an incredible strategy. Um, and the, 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 the beauty of it, you didn't even realize that you were I giving didn't. up that information until I pointed I it out. I know, I know. And, you know, I, I just love correcting uh, people, like you said. I mean, this is a natural tendency to correct something. Um, what happens if a re relationship with a customer is, is already soured? Um, you know, you didn't get off to, to a good bat with the customers. A lot of times customers are angry with you during the onboarding stage and you're now in a different phase of that customer journey. What are some strategies that you can do to, to rebuild trust that has already been broken? Uh, and, and, you know, people panic during the first initial conversation, or if it's a big client, like you're about to onboard Microsoft, one of the biggest logos in the world, and, and you just, you are so prepared, but you, you blew it. How do you repair a relationship once something like that has, has already occurred? I'm sure you've run into many situations like that early on in your career where everything wasn't perfect off the bat. Well, it's not the end of the world because there is a psychological uh, principle that I call Rocky Road. If we get off to a bad start with somebody and then repair that relationship, we form a stronger bond than if we would have hit it off right away. And you see this in the movies. The girl meets the guy. The guy hates the girl. The girl hates the guy. And 20 minutes later, they're engaged in reproductive activities, right? So what I'm saying is, it's not the end of the world. So if you get off to a bad 
uh, start with your client, what you want to do is repair that relationship as quickly as possible, and then that bond will be stronger than if you had hit it off right away. Typically, I wouldn't. I would try building rapport first before I use that technique. But nonetheless, if you do find yourself there, there's a way out. What you can do then is there's something called uh, personal relationship index, and that is uh, proximity plus frequency uh, times frequency plus duration times intensity. And what that does is that forms the basis for all relationships because uh, agents used to come to us in the behavioral analysis unit and they would want to know how do we develop resources? How do we recruit spies? How do we get double agents? And we came up with this formula and it fits all relationships, any relationship you had in the past, the present or the future. So proximity, what proximity does is once you're together, either virtually or in, in face to face, if you just exist with one another, then you're going to develop a mutual liking for one another. So just if you exist and just existing isn't isn't uh, going to give you a good relationship, but you have to frequently exist with that person. And then you have to have duration to that contact. And then you also need intensity. Intensity can be measured by a lot of nonverbal indicators. One of the most powerful nonverbal indicator is uh, mutual gaze. When we look at one another's eyes, that releases endorphins, and endor or actually it releases oxytocin. And what oxytocin is, is the bonding hormone. So if you release oxytocin, I release oxytocin, there's a bond that's formed. And we'll just go for a minute back to the dog. I know that people have dogs, the dog will stare at you. He'll just tilt his head and give you a long stare like he's you know, looking deep into your soul. What that dog is really doing is he's using mutual gaze so you release oxytocin, he releases oxytocin, and that increases that bonding between you and your dog. And your dog needs that to survive because if you don't like the dog, you may not feed them. So dogs do this. This is behavior that goes across uh, species, I suppose we can say. So, My dog Dora does that to me all the time. So yeah, yeah. Uh, she's well fed. She's giving you an eye hug is what she's giving you. So. They do it. And so let me give you an example to kind of bring this in fact. Somebody mentioned my daughter, right? So my daughter was a homecoming queen at her high school. And so these guys will come around the house. That's proximity. I don't mind. They could be there frequently. They could be there every day in the proximity of my house and my daughter. I don't <laughs> care. The duration could be extended. I don't care. But when I start seeing a lot of intensity to that relationship, in other words, and I'm going to date myself here, they're in the they're supposed to be in the den watching a VHS movie, right? And uh -oh. what are they, yeah. <laughs> and what are they doing? Tilting their heads and they're staring at one another's eyes, right? No, that that you put the kibosh on that. You say, crash, <laughs> young man, go home, don't come back, because I know what's next. Because you can you can gauge the relationship intensity by using these four factors. And you know, one thing I used to do with my daughter was was I thought it was pretty funny that. Guys will come up to the door and knock on the door. And Mr. Schaefer, is Brooke home? I go, yes, and then close the door. And then my daughter will go, well, Dad, what'd you do that for? She just wanted to know if you were home. I told him, yeah. He didn't ask to see you or ask to come in. He just says, is Brooke home? I go, yeah, she is. Close the door. So, uh, that's too good. You're giving me too many strategies. Uh, my daughter, so, Dawn's going to hate me 18 years so, from now. 
So then let's go to bus the business world, especially with uh, the video. We yep. don't have proximity, right? So we have to have virtual proximity. So we can still issue those friend signals. And what you want to do is make sure that there's you frequently contact your, your uh, client, that you add a little bit of duration to your client, and then you add a little intensity to the client. And here's the key. If every time you meet your client, you make your client feel good about themselves, they're going to want to see you again because they're going to want to experience that good feeling again. In fact, yeah. you may get a call out of the blue because they want to make a connection with you because you uh, made them feel good about themselves. And so it's a combination of, of these things in that that increase your probability of success in a good relationship we want to do business with people we like we buy things from people we like even if it's a little more expensive we will buy from the people we like so it's up to us to develop you so with the personal relationship index if you're at a uh, conference you just be there and then you add an eyebrow flash a head tilt a smile and then you talk to that client so you're starting to slowly build rapport and then there's something called the bridge back. So if I discuss something with you and I find out that you have your, your, something about your family, your hobbies, something about your job that's very specific, the next time I call you, I may say, hi, this is Jack Schaefer. You remember we met at the conference? How's your, how's your wife? How's the dog? How's things going? How's your health? Yeah. How's this? So what you're doing is you're bridging back to the rapport you built during that conference and the research shows that if you bridge back, you don't start rapport building over again. You pick up where you left off at the yeah. conference. Uh, I hope everyone in the crowd is listening. Uh, there is so much golden nuggets here in terms of people do buy from the people that they like. And a lot of times you spend all this time building relationships with your customers and Forgetting to bridge back is a critical mistake because you're you're essentially starting that negotiation from the from the ground up. So uh, I know these sound so simple, but it's such a good reminder for for myself as well. Two more questions, and then we're going to go into to the questions from the crowd because there's quite a bit, which is uh, which is good. Um, part of uh, a learning lesson and and something that we like to do our company is is being vulnerable and and talking about the moments that didn't go so well. Um, very similar to, to your story earlier with Mr. Kim, um, what's been the toughest negotiation that you've ever had in your life? The toughest, um, interaction that, you know, it could have gone well, but may, even if it didn't go well, what was the, what was the toughest one that, that you can share? And why was, why was it so tough given the skills that you have? Yeah, well, the, the toughest one I had when I was, uh, negotiating with a, a, a suspect and his attorney. And I was uh, trying to negotiate a plea agreement with them. And the problem I ran into is the attorney knew a lot of the techniques I was using. So he would combat those techniques. And we, it was kind of like a psychological uh, judo match. And I was thinking, how am I gonna get to this guy? He knows what I'm doing, what am I gonna do? So what I decided to do was be honest. You know exactly what I'm doing. He goes, yes, I do. And I said, well, how am I doing? He said, you're doing really well. I said, well, good. Where did you learn your stuff from? And he said, oh, I learned it from this or that, and I learned this and that. And so what I do, 
I developed common ground with him. I knew rapport was bad. So I shifted to develop common ground. And one, the quickest way to develop common ground is find something you have in common with somebody else. So we, there's three ways to do that. First is contemporaneous. That means you share something in common together. And the attorney and I shared something in common. We both knew how to play the game. And so I just, I emphasized that commonality that we had. And then it turned out we were able to build rapport again and make a deal. So the second way to build common ground is temporal common ground. I was in the army, you are in the army now. So over time we have common ground. And this comes in yeah. into play because I've been all over the country lecturing and I've been to pretty much every major city. So if I say, where are you from? You say, I'm from Dallas. Oh, three years ago, I was in Dallas giving a speech, or I worked in Dallas for a couple months. And so over you have common ground over uh, time. The, the last one and probably the most powerful way is something called vicarious common ground. We live through somebody else. So you have a client that has a hobby, say NASCAR, and you don't know anything about NASCAR. So you can't say, I know NASCAR, because <laughs> well, immediately they're going to say, what about number 28? What about this guy? What about that guy? I don't know. So you're not a NASCAR fan. Now you're a liar and you lose credibility. So here's yeah. what you do. My sister-in-law, in fact, this is a case I used. My sister-in-law is an avid NASCAR fan. And so they start asking me about NASCAR. And I go like, you know what? I don't know. My sister just talks about number 28. She talks about Daytona and she talks about this. I don't really know what she's talking about, but she really enjoys it. It's a really Wait, good. Does your, does your sister, do you, first of all, do you have a sister? And second of all, does she really like NASCAR? Yeah. Well, I, I, I come from a family of 10 kids and, uh, okay. <laughs> I, and I've got a lot of friends and pretty much every one of my friends has done pretty much everything that's possible to do. So you can find vicarious common ground. Mm. That's you know, good. car salesmen use this all the time. Hi, how are you? What do you do for a living? I'm a baker. Oh, my my dad was a baker. No, but yeah, who knows if his dad was a baker or not? But you can't ask him baker questions because he'll say, well, I don't know. My dad used to just come home and give us day old donuts all the time. Powder our nose with the flour. Right. So what we're doing is we're avoiding that direct uh, inquiry into that topic because we don't know anything about it because our friend does. Our sister does, our brother, our relative, somebody else does it. So it's vicarious. Yeah. And you don't have to lie because most of us know people from all kinds of walks of life. Or I saw I saw it on TV. I mean, you, you could take vicarious common ground from anywhere and not lie. I don't like to lie to people. I think honesty is the best policy. So yeah. but there's, there's no reason why you can't use some psychological tools to put your best you forward. And I know a lot of people say, this is manipulation, Mr. Schaefer. And then I ask him, you ever been on a first date? The squirrel goes, oh, yes. Make sure your hair was special then. Make sure you had the right clothes on. Make sure you had the right makeup. You spent a little extra time with the makeup. Yes, yes. I said, well, that's that's manipulation, isn't it? She said, well, no. Well, I guess it is. Yeah, it is. That is manipulation. So you're a manipulator. And so then I said, no, think about it. What you're trying to do, it's still you, isn't it? The, the best you is still you, isn't it? So your job is to put the best you forward when you meet your clients and you develop relationships with your client. And once that relationship gets gets matured, then you can relax a little bit yeah. and, and get, let them know that you are flawed. And I, think, many, um, 
there are many moments where you know I struggle, whether it's talking with investors or customers and not being able to just get to them. And I think the one thing I always forget is how do you listen for the common grounds and how do you tie that, tie that back, whether it's a real common ground or a vicarious common ground. I think that's a great lesson here for, for everyone. Um, I'm going to jump to some, some questions from the crowd. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to get to any of them. A um, couple of questions from the crowd. I'm trying to combine a couple of these because there's, there's a lot of common themes. What happens if you're talking with a client and they're not moving? Uh, their eyes aren't moving. They're not smiling, but they're not frowning. Uh, they're not moving their necks. They're just stone cold and they're not making any type of movements, not giving anything away. How do you get them to to open up or be more comfortable? Or how can you even tell what's going on if they're not giving you any cues? The first thing you can do, there's several things you can do. The first thing you can do, if you're face-to-face, -face, you hand them a piece of paper that's just out of their reach and say, could you do me a favor and take a look at this paper? They're going to have to what? Come in. They're going to have to move their body. They're going to have to go in there, and they're going to have to physically look at it. So you're achieving several things. They're leaning in towards you. And if you ask them to do you a favor, we feel good about ourselves when we do other people favors, don't we? Yes. So that goes into the yeah. into the rule. If you make other people feel good about you, they're going to like you. So I always ask people for favors. Can you do me a favor and look at this? So they're going to move. And once you get them to move physically, they're going to move mentally. The other thing you can do is you can use an empathic statement. And all an empathic statement is, or empathetic, you can pronounce it either way, is you take what that person says, how they feel, or their emotional situation, their physical status, and you use parallel language and you mirror it back to them. So if, if you were very stoic there, I'd say, so, and I always say, so you, because you want to keep it on that other person. So that's how you want to construct a, a, an empathic statement when you're first starting out, so you, because they don't care about you. You have to put the focus on them. So I would say, so you're a little reluctant to talk about this topic today. You're a little reluctant to make a decision today. And when you have an, that's an elicitation tool and it's a rapport building tool. So you get a double whammy out of this, this empathic statement. So if I say, you look a little stoic today, you look like you're not very interested in the product. You look like this, you look like that, whatever their, their, their emotional status or physical status is. And you'd be surprised what you get because there was one guy falling asleep in one of my uh, uh, trainings with police officers. And I, I rather yelling at him and say, oh, you're sleeping. You shouldn't be sleeping during my lecture because, you know, you should listen. So I just says, oh, you must have had a rough night. And he says, yeah, I was on duty all night. And I just came right from duty to here. And I usually sleep right away when I get off. So was that guy doing that out of intent? No, it was because he's tired. He, did, he wasn't doing it out of, uh, you know, uh, to insult me or anything, or he wasn't bored. He just was tired. So I avoided a big confrontation there. So use empathic statements. Following up on the elicitation question, someone in the crowd wants to know, what if your elicitation is working and they correct you? Isn't there a scenario in which they could be correcting you and still lying? And this is a major, major customer deal. You're about to make decisions based on their correction. How can you tell if they're really correcting you honestly or if they're lying? Well, the tendency is when you use elicitation tools, they will 
uh, typically tell the truth. Very seldom will they lie if you use elicitation tools. Because what happens when you ask a direct question, shields go up. What does he want? How does, you know, what's, how is he going to use this information? How is he going to put me in a bad light? And then they typically come out and say, oh, everything's fine. But that's not what they're thinking. You can also use another elicitation technique called the third-party perspective. People more readily talk about a third party than they do themselves. So you could say, you know, I was talking to another uh, uh, company, their representatives, and they're having problems in this area. And so then the person, when, when you ask somebody from a third-party perspective, you usually go to your heart to tell the truth. And if you ask a direct question to somebody, they typically will go to social norms. So the good example yeah. is you're going to ask your, your soon-to-be husband, do you cheat? I mean, will you cheat on me? And of course, he's going to, a direct question, he's going to go to social norms. Of course not, I wouldn't do that. So a better way to do that is to say, my friend Mary Beth, her husband cheated on her, and what answer do you want to hear? Cheating's bad, you shouldn't do it. But if that's his true feeling. But if his true feeling, he wants to cheat, he'll come out with an answer like this. Well, perhaps she didn't pay enough attention to him or, or she was acting goofy or, or you know, she'll think of many other excuses other than cheating's bad, you shouldn't do it. And the same way you can ask your kids about marijuana smoking. Jeez, son, do you smoke, do you smoke, do you smoke marijuana? The kid's going, no, dad, I don't. And so I'm going to say, you know, a friend of mine, his kid was caught smoking it marijuana in school or in school or had marijuana in school and you want to hear your son say dad that's wrong you shouldn't you shouldn't do that but you know what my son said he said oh he shouldn't have brought it to school dad it's only marijuana i'm going like whoa this kid's smoking dope <laughs> so if you use the third party perspective you get them to talk about a third party and they're, they're going into their heart to get the answer you ask them a direct question they're going to social norms I wasn't really sure how this question was was going to go, and uh, those those examples are, are tough for me to translate back into customer success, as as great as they are. Um, but so, customer success, you can ask you can ask me. I was talking to somebody else, right? That's right. That's right. And uh, what's your take on that? So, uh, question from the crowd: Is this different uh, in North America? Like, are there different culture norms that you got to account for? Because um, I guess from this question, for example, in India, people nod side by side, not up and down like it's done in, in North America. So um, is there or is there cues that you look for that are standard across? Because clearly the, the nodding one has some slight differences. Well, here's here's what here's what the way I, I like to use this analogy. All humans are the same, no matter where you are in the world. We have the same desires. We're communal people. We want to be with people. We want to be accepted. We have the same libido. We have hunger and thirst. We share all those core human behaviors. So what I do is I'll teach you the core human behaviors. And it's up to it's like a cake of core human behaviors. And it's up to you to frost that cake with culturally specific frosting. So if the knot is side to side in India, that's the frosting you put on the the human behavior it's still a nod though isn't it yeah <laughs> all so right it does um, work cross culturally it's just that you have to i'll give you the core human behaviors you have to frost that cake with that culturally specific frosting this is a very important question uh it's on ethics these are some incredible strategies on 
eliciting uh, 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 information out of somebody, um, mirroring uh, to, to, to get people to feel comfortable. Like honestly, prior to, to the folks here attending this session, these are probably not even things that they, that they know about. And I, I'm willing to bet everyone here is incredibly appreciative of this information, but do you ever get talked about on, on, on the topic of ethics when you're using these types of things? Obviously it's necessary for, for life-threatening work like negotiations for, 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 for criminal activities, but for selling software, uh, are, are there ethics to, to be considered when it comes to using these strategies in everyday life? Well, is, is it unethical to uh, find out what the needs of your client is? Is that unethical? No, I would say not. Uh, some may, some say may not, why, but why I don't think so. so. I just so want everyone to feel comfortable. How can you sell something to somebody if you don't know what their needs are? That's and true. You're, you're right. We all want the best deal, don't we? We're not going to give up. In negotiations, whoever gives up the, the price point first loses. And that's how the game's played. So how much are you going to pay? Well, how much are you going to sell it? It's your product. You tell me how much you're willing to sell it for, and then I'll tell you whether I'm going to buy it or not. But first of all, I want to know before I spend all that time negotiating with you, do you have a need for this product? That's tantamount. If they don't have the need, then why negotiate for it? Why spend all your time negotiating for something they don't need? And if that person is not the person that's in charge of the purse string, they can authorize the sale. Why talk to that person? Talk to the person that has a responsibility of, of actually purchasing something. So these are all yeah. things you can find out and you can find out very easily. So Edward, I, I assume that if you're gonna negotiate a deal, you're gonna have to go to your manager to get the okay on this. Uh, that, I guess. Jack, I'm, I'm hesitant to respond to anything you say after after what you pulled on me yesterday. So uh, I apologize to the crowd. You are going to get awkward pauses from me whenever Jack asks me a question. I'm I'm on guard right now. No, but you see how if you said no, I'm the boss. I make the decisions. Okay, good. Let's talk. Yeah. Now is that unethical? No, I mean I I was about to tell you I am the boss, but uh, then you would have put me in a, a difficult spot. <laughs> Well, I, I, um, all I right. knew that. That's why I asked the question. I, I, I know, I know. I, <laughs> your tactics are too good. Uh, I, I, that's really what I wanted to say was, Jack, well, I don't have a boss, so here you go. But, but uh, you, I have all the budget. But, Take all my money. But you look way too young to have such uh, responsibilities. You know, I, I use a lot of uh, Korean facial products to, to keep this up. Honestly, with the baby, it's it's tiring, but that's 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 besides the point. I don't want the crowd to go well, wild here. Well, well guess. Uh, yeah, let me let me interrupt you right here. What did that? I used the technique. I allowed instead of flattering you by saying you're the boss, I used a technique to allow you to flatter yourself, and you were patting yourself on the back. Uh, you know and what? That makes, and that makes Jack, you feel this is not part of the prep plan. Uh, but oh, I okay. hope the crowd appreciates what Jack is doing here. It is marvelous. Um, <laughs> Last question, so that I stop embarrassing myself. Um, what is what happens if somebody that you're communicating with is constantly uh, lying? They're just every word out of their mouth is a lie, and I'm sure you've dealt with situations where there's not a single truth to to what they're saying. 
how do you deal with a situation like that? Because in a client setting, you can't call them a liar. Uh, that will immediately kill that deal. But sometimes the way people guard themselves is they just lie and it comes off very natural to them. It's what they do. So uh, what are some, what, what do you do in that situation? Well, I typically would walk away because I don't want to do business with a liar because Fair. anything they say is true. But let me close with one very valuable technique for, for uh, the people listening. And that is Please. something called the well technique. If you ask somebody a direct yes or no question and they begin their response with the word well, it means they are about to give you an answer they know you're not expecting. So a good example, I send my kid off to the, to the bedroom, I said, do your homework. I hear nothing but shenanigans going on there. So I come out, he comes out of the bedroom and I say, did you do your homework? And he says, well, I said, get back in there and do it. Well, how'd you know I didn't do it? I'm an FBI, I know these things, but what did he do? I asked him a direct yes or no question. He says, well, what answer does he think I'm expecting to that question? Yes. If he answers well, it's anything but yes, which is no. So if I ask you, Edward, am I getting a raise this year, or a bonus at Christmas? Well, that means no. Because you oh. think I'm, I'm expecting a yes answer. Yeah, you're getting a, but if you say, well, it's anything but yes, so it's no. You can, use, you can use that. It's a very powerful technique that you can use in almost any situation on the job, off the job, business, social, anywhere. Well, Jack, uh, on that note, uh, there is a. <laughs> well, no, there's, there's a difference. A that, that wasn't a yes or no question. So that when you say, well, that means you're thinking, but it has to be an, in response to a yes or no question. So are we finished? Yes or no? Well, that means we're not finished. Well, we could go on for, for a little bit longer, but there is <laughs> there is this uh, hashtag that says save Edward in the question box. So I think the people are starting to feel bad for me. So uh, on that <laughs> note, Jack, uh, really, really appreciate your time today. Uh, it's been immense while I'm looking at the comments in here. People are saying just how good this is. I'm sure this recording is going to be watched millions of times. Uh, this is probably the first time in history where we are bringing the context from an expert who does this for a living into customer success. And honestly, this is something that people just aren't used to seeing. So I'm confident this is going to be uh, very, very popular in the community. So, Jack, really appreciate your time and coming to share all this wisdom with everybody. And um, if, if anyone who has not uh, read Truth Detector, go out there and get a copy because you are going to get some amazing strategies like this. and. I'm sure it's something that you can go back and read and read every single time. So, uh, Jack, on that note, thank you very much and uh, have a wonderful day, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share this podcast with a friend. If you want to learn more about Catalyst, visit Catalyst.io. Until next week, I'm Ben Wynn and this was NPS I Love You. P.S. I love you. <laughs>